Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice. They listen to me and they follow me. And every time we open God's word, he's speaking to us. Jesus is speaking to us. The question is whether or not we will have hearts to hear. So I have, this is my life's work. This is what I do. I read, I read the word of God. This somehow, mysteriously, God has taken these human words and bound himself to them in such a way that this is his eternal word forever for all people, all different cultures, every generation, every perspective. This is still God's word to everyone. And I firmly believe that. I would not be here preaching. I wouldn't be anywhere preaching if I didn't believe that. And so that is sort of the, I just want to get our minds in the right space. God actually has something to say to us. And I hope that you hear him this morning. So to, uh, to tee us off, before we get into John 15, and actually, I didn't know that translation would be the one that was read. And it almost makes me want to change the sermon because that is so not what the Greek says. But um, <laughs> but that's okay. We're gonna stick with we're gonna stick with the plan. Okay, we're gonna start. Um, so it's in John 15. But before we get there, I actually want to start with John 1 to kind of tee us up. Okay, it's John chapter 1, and this is John the Baptist. John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. If you have a Bible or you have an electronic one on your phone, feel free to scroll there or flip there. But um, this is the beginning of, of the Gospel of John. He says this in, in verse 35. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? I'm going to stop right there. What are you seeking? That is a profound question. What are you seeking? What are we all seeking? What this question does is it kind of drills down into what actually motivates us. What actually is making our heart tick? You know, our, our sympathetic nervous system makes our hearts uh, speed up when certain things are happening. But they didn't know that in ancient times. They just knew that your heart, they didn't know this is a blood pumping muscle that helps you into fight or flight mode. They just knew that some things make your heart like this. So what are you seeking? For most of us, this is just my observation. I'm young, so you guys can correct me. I, I leave it to you. You guys to correct me if I'm wrong about this. But I think there, there are a couple things that really, really motivate people. And one is fear. One is fear. We need to feel okay. We know that the world is a dangerous place. The pandemic has sort of brought that to the forefront of our minds. But it's always been that way. It's always been a dangerous place for us. And that's why we have that fight or flight response. And fear is one of the ways that, we, that we're able to deal with the dangers of the world. And so what often motivates us to do the things we do is fear that something bad is going to come upon us. Right? We are, we are heart-centered creatures. We are made in the image of a heart-centered God. And our hearts need to feel okay. 
need to feel as though we are going to be safe. And so we do various things in order to, in order to accomplish this, to feel like we're okay, right? Um, some people, depending on where you're from, you'll buy a lottery ticket because you think that that will give you money and that will make you okay. Or on the opposite side, you've got to go to the best schools so you can get the best job, so you can make the most money, so that you'll feel secure. Or maybe you need a relationship that will make you feel secure. You need a house or a big house or a house in a gated community or whatever it happens to be. You need to feel okay. The world is too big for us to manage on our own. There's too many variables that we can't control. And so we go, we go back to things over and over again because they make us feel like we're okay. For some people, this is an addiction. It can be alcohol. It can be various other things. A second thing that motivates us and really moves our hearts is love. And you guys know this. You guys all know this. You don't really need to be taught that. But that love can take the form of another person that makes your heart race. Right? Another person will, will get your heart moving, get you going. Or maybe it's just being around them. Who knows? But in this, in this way of looking at the world, the world is too small. You don't have enough. You can't get enough. So this could be a relationship, but it can also be base jumping, mountain climbing, uh, riding a motorcycle like me. me. Uh, I hope I have mixed motives for doing that. It's not purely for the adrenaline rush. But, um, but we go about saying, I don't have enough, I need more. So it's, it's either something's going to get me, I need to have this so that I'll be okay, or I'm not okay because I need more, and that drives us to do more things. This can also be a form of addiction, right? So, when life gets hard, we fall back on these repetitive patterns of going somewhere to placate that desire to have more or to feel okay. In the context of the passage today, John 15, is uh, Jesus is in his last meeting with his disciples before he's going to go to the cross. And he's just dropped a bomb on them. So Jesus has gone around throughout his ministry, and what he's done is he has strategically created the right kind of allies and the right kind of enemies. He's done enough to convince at least his nearest followers that he is the Messiah. And that has created an enormous amount of tension with the powers that be. And then Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going away and you're not going to be able to follow me. Okay, that, that's a bomb for them because they're thinking that they're going to be part of the cabinet of the new regime. They're going to be in, in positions of authority and power. And now Jesus is going away. So in a sense, he was their protection. Now he's going to go away, and they're not going to be able to go with him, which means they are going to be the personas non grata that the powers of Like Jesus' enemies have become their enemies, right? And now there's no Jesus. So what are they going to do? You can sense the tension and the nervousness here. So it's into that tension that Jesus is now speaking. Um, I think maybe, yeah, I'll just, I'll just read my translation so you get, so you get where, where I'm going. Okay. In chapter 15, uh, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, um... Jesus uses a metaphor here. It's a, it's a gardening or agricultural metaphor that most of us are probably not super familiar with unless you grew up uh, trimming vines in a vineyard or something like that. Um, and most, uh, I don't know if I would say most, but a lot of people take this passage to mean in the translation that was printed for you, it follows this, uh, follows this interpretation, that this passage is really about who's in and who's out. And if you bear fruit, you're in, and if you don't, you're out. And that's it. Um, that's what the passage is about. I actually disagree. We can talk about this afterwards. Actually, we can't because I have my, uh, my home group is meeting at noon. But I'll leave a card here so you can have my email. We can talk about it later. Anyways, I don't, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time debating it. Let's just say this is about, um, uh, this is about bearing fruit and abiding. Those are the two, the two main words you might have heard over and over again. And this translation is remain, which is, which is a good translation. Uh, mine says abide, also a good translation, but it's a bit archaic. So remain and fruit. That's, those are the two words that are used over and over and over here. Remain and fruit. And that's one of the reasons why you have that particular interpretation. Who's in and who's out. Um, the interesting thing about the passage is there are two, two imperatives, two commands, things that you're told to do. Neither of them are to bear fruit. The first one is to abide. And that one comes up twice. You're told twice to remain. Meno is the Greek word. Where do we get the word? Remain. Remain. The second imperative is to ask. As you remain, as you abide, ask. You notice that the two commands here are both relational. They're relational. Stay with me. Stay and ask. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about the, about the context. We can talk a little bit more about that later. What I really want to hone in on, and actually the, the, the one verse that I, that I gave to Matt, he was like, are you sure you don't want more verses? Because this is like, we're going to have a whole blank page here, you know, was verse 9, which says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So I just want to stay here. Because I just read right over that, you know, before... Uh, in the reading, it was read right over. It's very easy to just read over it and not think about it. Now, now stop and think about this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Son has 
for his disciples and by extension for you and I. There isn't, there, there aren't two loves in God, right? There, there isn't like the, the varsity, wholehearted, like whole God love that goes to his son. And then like the measured out, parsed out love that goes to us. That's, that's a foreign concept to us. So I just want to just stop and sit here for a minute, okay? Um, the, the way that I love my spouse is not the way that I love my friends, okay? It, it, anybody have kids here? Okay, the way you love your children, is that the same love that you have for someone else's children or for your, for your friends that you play Scrabble with or whatever? We don't know what this, what this love is really like. What, <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Like, we should just stop and go, this is crazy. The, there isn't a different love that God has for us that's different from the love he has for us. So, God has one love. And forever and ever and ever. That's the first point about that love, by the way. I got five points here. So, if you're, uh, if you're like OCD and you're like, I got to write down all five points. Okay, you can write them down. One through five. First one is that this love is eternal. Okay? So, God has always existed, and He's always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this mutual relationship of love. Turn over a page if you have the Bible to John 17. Jesus is praying here. It's the end of this upper room discourse with his disciples. When he gets to the end, he prays for his disciples. And then in this passage here, he's praying for those who will believe on the testimony of their disciples, which means us. He's praying for us. 17, uh, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, that means you and I, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Wait, is it, this is a, that sort of abide, remain language again, right? To be together. They may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That's not a different love than the love he has for you and I, by the way. Keep that in mind. Before the foundation of the world, verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You're seeing the, the abide, the remain, the love, same, all that language, it's all being tied up here again in this prayer. Man, it's hard not to just preach this passage here. So I'm going to go back real quick. Real quick, don't want to go there. It's the same love, and it is an eternal love. There's somehow, mysteriously, in God, there's enough space to make a distinction between Father and Son, and if you call it space between them, that's the Holy Spirit who's communicating this love back and forth forever and ever. Those of you who have kids, you tend to know before your child is born that you're going to have the child, Right? And if you, uh, you know, if, if you're married to the person you're having a child with and you wanted to have a child, you tend to have these conversations with one another. Oh, is it going to be a he or a she? What are they going to be like? Who are they going to grow up to be? What's their personality going to be? You have these loving conversations about them before they are even born. That's the love that God has for you and I. It's not a second class love. It's his only love. And it's the best one out there. So it's eternal, first one. Second one. God's love is the kind of love that lifts up those he loves. You know, our, our love it doesn't always do this. 
But you notice in, in Jesus' life, if you're familiar with the Gospels, there are three occasions where the Father actually just says something publicly about His Son. And two of those are repeated in all the synoptics, and they're almost a repetition of one another. Do you recall what they are? The first one is Jesus' baptism. And the second one is His transfiguration. On both of these occasions, what the Father does is He says, This is my Son, and what does He say? Whom I am proud of. This is my Son whom I love. This is my Son whom I love. He's saying to everybody, Hey, look, this is my Son, the one that I love. And then in the transfiguration, He adds on, Listen to Him. You know, as a parent... There's something that goes on, you know, I have, a, I have an 18-month-old and a 3-month-old. So that's what I do with my life, pretty much entirely. I, I do this, and I, and I am with them. That's it. There, there are no hobbies anymore. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? When I am with people, with my daughter, and I'm watching her, my son's only 3 months, so he doesn't really do a whole lot yet. Um, when I see my daughter, and she's doing something, she's being all cute, and I look around, and people are talking to each other, and I'm like, hey, what is your problem? What is wrong with you? You need to be looking at my daughter. Look how cute she is. <laughs> That's the kind of love God has for his children. That's the kind of love he has for his son. He's like, hey, look, the most important thing you should be paying attention to is my son. Look at him. He loves to lift up and glorify the son. And conversely, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, his will is to glorify his Father. So it's a, it's a kind of love that lifts up the one that is loved. Lifts them up. The word is glory. Bring glory to the other. Third thing about God's love. Here we're going to get a little technical. And that is, God's love is a love that, that flows out from within. It's part of God's nature to just, to just burst forth in love. You know, our love is often drawn out by whatever that object is, right? Something is beautiful, or someone is beautiful, and because they are beautiful, our love is then drawn out. They become like a magnet that draws our love out. If they were ugly, if they were not the right personality or whatever, we wouldn't really give them the time of day. And that's, in fact, how we do most of our life. Things are attractive to our hearts, and we give our love to those things. And things are not attractive, and we don't give our love to those things. It's actually not how God is. God's love flows out from inside. He's like a dam ready to burst with love. Luther gets into this during the Reformation. You guys are, should be familiar with this. You've gone from various Reformed denominations or whatever. In the Heidelberg Disputation, Luther talks about a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. And one of the things he says is that God's love does not seek out what is lovely to it, but creates the love that he's seeking. God doesn't look out on the sea of humanity and say, who are the good, well-behaved people? Who are the happy, smiling people? Who are the people that I can have on my team that will really build up you know, my brand? If that was the case... We would be doing a very poor job <laughs> right now. I mean, have you seen the people in your church? You know, well, you, can, you should come to my church then, maybe. You guys are all nice. You know, I can see why, he, why God wanted you on his team. But for the most part, God looks out at a bunch of sinners, a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of bozos. I'm trying to find good names that are like not offensive for 
you know, sinners or whatever. God looks out on a bunch of bozos. And he says, I have set my heart on you. That's what he does with Israel. Deuteronomy, he says this, I set my heart on you in love. Was God ignorant of the fact that they were going to be a rebellious people? Absolutely not. God's love does not seek what is lovely, but creates what is lovely in the beloved, so that they actually become lovely. By the way, one of the ways in which this is counterintuitive is because you and I are taught, we, we learn this, nobody's saying it explicitly. We're taught to treat ourselves and each other as commodities, as though our value is tied up and whether or not it's either a moral economy, whether or not we're good people, we can convince other people we're good, whether or not we make a lot of money or have some sort of status in this life, whether or not we have stuff, you're not a commodity. Your value does not come, does not come at all from the certain relationships that you have, humanly speaking, from how much money is in your bank account, how beautiful you are. It does not come from how, how long your resume is or CV, if you're you're that hoity-toity or whatever. Your value does not increase by any of those things. You're valuable because the Lord has set his heart on you in love. That's what makes you valuable. Just a side note. The closest thing to this, once again, I keep on coming back to the children metaphor. You know, when you have a baby, like I've just had two in the last year and a half. I've had two children. And both of them come out, they're all kind of squishy and look kind of like a frog. You know, they're not... They're not cute when they're first born. I mean, we're all nice to each other about it. But they're not cute when they're first born. It isn't their cuteness that draws out my... You know, when I saw my daughter, I was just like... I don't know what it was. You're just like, I will stand in front of a freight train for you. I will spend the rest of my life bleeding out for you. You're never going to give back to me a millionth of what I'm going to give to you. But I love you so much. That's, That's one drop in the ocean of God's love. For us. Okay? I'm just trying to just trying to give you a little picture. Okay, fourth thing. God's love extends beyond his family, obviously. The same way the Father loves the Son, the same way his love does. Our love, you know, I, I looked up some statistics on this. You know, 164,000 people die every day. And we go about our business like it's no. We don't, we don't skip a beat by it. During this time, like in one hour, 7,000 people on this planet die. And I'm not bothered by it. I'm not saying this to shame any of us. I'm just saying, like, our love is extremely limited. You know, my grandfather died a month ago, and that hurts. I still have a hole. I'm still kind of limping from that. Probably will for a long time. So it's not until it gets close to me that it's actually affecting me. That's not how it is with God. His love goes out. Goes out. There have been uh, a few, uh, when I was thinking about how to illustrate this, I was thinking, movies are always a good thing to go, well, not always, movies are not always a good thing to go to, but, so, have you, have you seen or heard about these, there are a couple of series of movies, they're, they're like these vengeance movies, so one was this Liam Neeson series called Taken, you know, and his daughter gets taken by the bad guys, and he goes on a rampage and kills a whole bunch of them to daughter back. And it's so good, they have to have a second one, and a third one. And then there's this other one, this, this one called John Wick. Man, this one is comical. I actually saw the first one of this one. 
It's like his dog gets his dog is killed and he goes on a rampage and he murders like a million people just because his dog got killed, right? And we love that. You know, you know, we they're blockbuster hits that have second and third iterations of them because we love our sense of like justice is satisfied, or we just love the fact that somebody has so much love for something that they're willing to put themselves out there. The crazy thing is that God is able to do that without going out and, and slaying all his enemies. He actually is interested in, in winning them to his side rather than just killing them off. Paul was the greatest proponent of this because he said that I was God's enemy. I actually killed people on God's team, his beloved. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me personally? Why are you persecuting me was persecuting the church. And he saw that what God had done is shown him grace. It's kind of hard for us, but God loves everybody. His love is not limited to those in the immediate family. But you might say, what about the elect? Are you, you, know, are you promoting a universal salvation? No, I'm not. Just, I'm not saying, I don't think the Bible teaches universal salvation. Maybe. We can, we can talk about that one too. Um, but if you're worried about, like, this is lopsided, what about the God of wrath, all that sort of stuff, don't worry, like, God, God's, got, God's got plenty of that. But, you know, yeah, I would not be super happy if my kids were like, you know what, my dad loves me so much, and, and then my other kid was like, yeah, but he's angry too. <laughs> you know, it's not like God puts that foot forward and is like, this is how it should be known. In fact, before there was a creation, there was sin, there was no anger in God. It's a secondary characteristic. Primary one is love. That one always existed. So back on the movie metaphor. There's another movie that I saw. I don't watch a lot of movies, by the way, and I do not recommend them. When I say, when I talk about movies, I'm not recommending them. So I saw this movie uh, called Pig. Have you ever heard of Pig? P-I-G, Pig. It's with Nicolas Cage. So I, I have some friends who we go on these, this thing called Cage Rage, and we watch Nicolas Cage movies, and we're just like, I don't get it. This is, it's kind of like, so bad it's good, or so bad it's just bad, or maybe it's kind of good. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure him out as an actor. So we see this movie, Pig, and it takes place here in, in Portland in the Northwest, and Nicolas Cage is this former chef at like a bougie restaurant, but he gets fed up with the, with the restaurant scene, and he moves into a shack in the woods with this truffle-hunting pig, and then he hunts down these truffles and then sells them to the restaurants through like this dealer or whatever. And someone, somebody come from like the, the chef underground or whatever comes and like it's, he sends these thugs out to like bop him on the head and take it, steal his pig, you know, cut out the middleman so that they can go get the truffles themselves. So, but Nick Cage loves his pig, you know. So he goes into Portland. And he's going, he's going through the underground rings of chefdom or whatever it is. And he gets beat up and he's all a bloody pulp. And then he ends up finding the leader of this whole, like, secret ring of, like, of supply goods to restaurants or whatever who's, who's hired these thugs to take his pig. And he goes to this guy's house and he's like, I want my pig. And the guy's like, don't forget about your pig. Here, I'll give you 20 grand or whatever. He's like, oh, no, I want my pig. I love my pig. I want the pig. And he's like, if you come back here, your pig's going to be bacon. Don't come back here ever. 
So Nicolas Cage goes on a rampage. No, he doesn't actually. That's what you'd expect, right? He goes on a rampage like, the, like John Wick or whatever. What he does is he says, I, I remember every meal I ever made and every customer I ever had. And he remembered this meal that he made for that man when he was at the happiest point of his life. And he goes out and he buys all the ingredients and he goes to that man's house and he makes, he recreates that meal for him. And it breaks him. He breaks that man. Not through vengeance. That's more like the way that God works. He wants to win his enemies, not destroy them. That's how his love works. His love goes out even to his enemies. He says, I not desire that the wicked should perish, but that they should turn from their wicked ways. It's the desire of the Lord that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's his love. I don't know, somebody stole my daughter? I probably would go to Liam Neeson on him, not, not Nicolas Cage pig on him. Um, but I'm not God. He's so much better than I am. Okay. Last one. I don't, what, what time am I supposed to stop? Nah. Okay, whenever. Okay. His fault then. His fault. <laughs> okay. Last one is, uh, is number five, if you've been writing this down. Uh, his love is pure and wholehearted. God's love is pure and wholehearted. Think about, you know, once again, I keep saying kids or relationships because this is the closest thing. This is what the Bible gives us for how God relates to us. You know, the two main metaphors that God has for his relationship to his people throughout the entirety of Scripture are a husband to an unfaithful spouse and a father to rebellious children. The two relationships that cut deepest into us. Those, do you see the point? The point that God is getting at in all of Scripture. This is the kind of relationship we're supposed to have. Okay? His love is pure and wholehearted. Now, it has no rivals. I love my wife so much. And I love my kids so much, and my wife loves me. I'm not sure about my kids. <laughs> um, they're kind of young. But even, even in, I would say these are like the purest loves that I have probably. Even there, I'm, I'm holding back a little bit. It's, it's kind of measured how much I'm giving out. You know, I'm, I'm watching the kids while my wife gets a break. But if she takes long enough, I'm like, hey, what about mine? What about me? Am I going to get... Am I going to get it? And even though I love my kids and I love my spouse, I kind of want to get out on a motorcycle ride every once in a while too. You know? I want to go out fly fishing every once in a while too. Uh, which I don't really get to do anymore. But the point is that love that I have, I would say like probably the purest love that I have is adulterated with this desire to see myself satisfied, to have, to get my own somehow. You know, I... I'll love you, but I also need to make sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay. So I'll measure it out until I, I get some good faith return, and then I'll keep measuring it. That's not how God's love is. Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were sons of disobedience, children of wrath, Paul says. But because God is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. His love extended to us when we were the children of wrath and we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He wasn't waiting for us to give a little bit back before he was going to give us his love. 
In fact, Jesus came and died before any of us were born. So God already did it before we even started sinning. It's pure and wholehearted. Second side of that, his love is pure affection. This is, this is the biggest one for me. You know, I, I, I grew up, I knew God is love. We all kind of know here that God is love, right? Um, but you kind of feel like God is love, that's his job, that's what he's got to do, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> you know? God is love. So my idea of God tends to be more like, you know, God's, God's the big boss, you know. He's got a job to do, and he says, oh, you, you um, sinners, I don't want you to go to hell. So, you know, I'll just do the job, I'll get the deed done. You know, I'll do it for you. Kind of reluctantly, maybe slightly resentfully, maybe not, but still, kind of like a Navy SEAL, you know. You've got a mission. Go in. Get the bad guys. Get them out, you know. And so at the end of the day, God comes and he rescues you, and you're like, thank you. And he's like, hey, just doing what my CEO said. All in a day's work. Flies off in his Black Hawk helicopter. Right? Like, that's kind of like how I thought of God's love. Like, not that he has this actual affection and desire. He's not Prince Charming who's like, my the one that I love, that I've set my heart in, is in danger. I'm going to put myself in the line of fire. I'm going to do everything I can to rescue her. And then I'm going to take her away. And I'm going to woo her. And I'm going to do everything for her. We're going to be together forever and ever. That's how God's love is. It's not the just get the job done Navy SEAL thing. It's the Prince Charming. I'm going to win you and woo you and be with you forever and ever. So, there are those five aspects of God's love. Why? Why is it this the main command that Jesus has here? His main command. Remain. He says, abide in my love. It's because if you abide in that love, you will bear fruit. If you abide in that love... You can get through anything. It's, frankly, it's almost infuriating how little instruction there is in the New Testament about getting out of your bad circumstances. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Paul, Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm in prison, but I got a good lawyer. Uh, I'm in prison, but you know what? I've rallied the troops. They're down at the courthouse right now applying the political pressure necessary to change my situation. Like, there's, there's none of that. It's like he's not worried about it at all. His instruction is always, hey, the gospel is going out. God is doing great things. It almost seems like they're more interested in changing the way we look at what's going on around us. Rather than just trying to fix whatever's going around so that we don't change. If you can abide in this love, it will change you. It will transform you. It will change the way you look at your circumstances. It will change you. And beyond that, this is exactly what God made us to do. You know what you're going to be doing in 100 years? All of us are not going to be here doing this. Right here in this world. We will all not be in this age in 100 years. You know what we will be doing? We'll be abiding in His love. And you know what we'll be doing in a thousand years? Abiding in that love. And in a million years and in a billion years, we'll still be abiding in that love. And it will be wonderful. It will be wonderful. It's that love that keeps us going. Last movie reference <laughs> for you. Have you seen the movie The Elephant Man? Anybody seen that movie? 
from 1980. My wife and I watched it a few months ago. It's the story of a guy named John or Joseph Merrick. There's like debate over what his real name is. But he was a guy who had these horrific deformities. And this was, this was in the 19th century in England. He had these horrific deformities. And there was a, um, a guy who, I guess, found him and brought him into this freak show circus thing so that people would pay him money to just gawk at him. And um, the doctor, I can't remember the doctor's name. He's played by Anthony Hopkins, though. So there's, there is, like, there's a decent actor in there, too. Um, but Anthony Hopkins finds him. He, at first, he has kind of this academic interest in him because he's a doctor. He's like, oh, yeah, I've never seen this case. And he's sort of, like, giving lectures and displaying him to, um, to his colleagues or whatever. But eventually he finds out this is actually a human being. He was a man. He has thoughts and feelings and desires like everyone else. And... He begins to, like, he puts a suit on him. He starts introducing him into polite society. He starts making friends. He's um, going, to, going to see shows, which at that time was plays, you know. Um, and then the guys, the, the dude who had him in the freak show kidnaps him and takes him back to France to do the freak show thing. Anyways, he escapes. And here's the crux of the movie. He escapes and comes back. And, uh, and Anthony Hopkins says to him, John, I am so, so sorry. For how much you have suffered. You have suffered so much. And I am truly sorry. And I'll butcher it if I just do it off the top of my head. So I wrote it down. This is what John Merrick says. He says. No. No. I am happy every hour of the day. My life is full. Because I know that I am loved. He's happy every hour of the day, and his life is full because he knows that he is loved. Knowing that you are loved will change you. So here's my, uh, I guess you'd call it an application, right? Here's my application. Don't really do application much. It's a thought experiment. Okay, so just take a minute. We're going to take half a minute, and then we'll be done, okay? Close your eyes and go back in your mind, through your memory, to the time in your life when you were the, happy, the happiest. It might be right now. <laughs> Maybe it's right now. Probably not. I'm not going to entertain that thought. But whenever in your life you were the happiest, and you may not have had like a really, really happy time in your life, but there's a time that's been better than any other time. Just sit in that moment and feel that feeling again. Do you know that right there in that moment, right there, that was God giving you a gift? He may not have announced His presence with you. He might not have said, hey, I'm God, I'm right here, and um, I just want you to know that your life is wonderful because I'm here and I'm giving you this gift. That's Him. That was Him. And that feeling that you have right there, that is what he wants you and I to have forever and ever and ever and ever. All the things that make our heart go in this world, whether it's motorcycle rides or fly fishing or making a lot of money or feeling secure, whatever it is, those just pale, pale in comparison to abiding in this love. 
do you want it? For some of us, you've been following Jesus for a long time, and our trouble is that our hearts have become a little dull, have become a little calloused, have just hummed around. We need him to be awakened again. So, I'm going to pray for us, and we will continue the service. Father, I thank you that your love is not like ours, that it just goes out and it goes on and on and on and on and on again. I thank you, Lord, that in the words of these passage, or the words of this passage, what you said that I didn't even get to is that you said all these things so that your joy might be in us. That joy that you have had forever and ever with the Father and the Holy Spirit communing with one another, enjoying each other's love, that that joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. I pray, Lord, for myself and for those of us who find ourselves over time having sort of layers built up around our heart to make it insensitive to your wooing, to make it insensitive to your passes at us and your desire to draw us back into your love. Lord, break those things down. Penetrate through the hardness of our heart and make us alive with love for you so that we might enjoy it now and forever to come. Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you so much. And in the words of Paul, because of the great love that you have for us, you made us alive in Christ, and you seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, you might show us the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness in Jesus. And we can take that promise to the bank. That is your desire, is to show us forever and ever the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness in Jesus. Lord, awaken our hearts and flame our hearts with love for you today and every day. In Jesus' name.